Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by your other host, Paul Jay, to speak about the most recent arrest of Boris Kagerlitsky. We've also just republished his last interview from a few months ago, so I hope you're able to watch that. If you enjoy this content, please go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen, get on our mailing list so you don't miss any future episodes, and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Analysis-News. See you in a bit with Paul. Boris Kagerlitsky, a leftist and anti-war thinker in Russia, was just arrested for so-called justifying terrorism uh, by the Russian authorities. He was charged with justifying terrorism and potentially faces five to seven years in jail. Let's hope that doesn't happen, but joining me now to speak about Boris's most recent arrest is Paul Jay. What do you think of his arrest? Um, well, Boris has been an activist, organizer, Marxist, leftist um, in Russia and before that in the Soviet Union. He's, uh, he often brags of having had the distinction of being arrested uh, under uh, all the various governments, Soviet and under Yeltsin and under Putin. Now, again, under Putin, um, I think he's been a, a, a consistent uh, fighter for progressive values and, and, and a, a writer, a thinker, but also an organizer. He gets very active, has been very actively involved in, in Russian politics, supporting progressive left uh, political parties and travels all over the country. Um, and I think his analysis is very important one to pay attention to. Um, there are things about uh, Boris's position that I don't agree with, and I, I've said so in the interviews, and, and I'll mention it a bit now, but before I do, um, th the main point Boris has been making is that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was primarily driven by Russian domestic politics, uh, Russian class struggle. Uh, he says that the... Uh, it was a, a strategic error, which everybody says. I think many even supporters of the war in Russia have said uh, they expected this to go a lot easier. His main analysis was that the reason for the invasion of Ukraine was Russian domestic politics, the struggle within Russia, uh, that Putin's party had done badly in the last elections, that there was a growing intensity of disillusionment in, in the Russian oligarchy, amongst the people, especially outside a few of the better, bigger cities where people are better off uh, in, in uh, rural and outside of the big cities. Uh, there's a lot of poverty and, and the situation for people is very difficult. Uh, and, and also there are real struggle going on within the elites. Uh, and in, in Boris's view, the invasion of Ukraine, which everybody thought including Putin and including, it seems, the West, and the thought of it would go uh, much better for the Russians and, mu and much more quickly. Uh, no one expected this drawn-out struggle. Um, but that the issue of NATO expansion, while an issue and a provocation, wasn't the fundamental reason for the invasion. That, it, that to understand the decisions leading up to the invasion, one has to understand the domestic situation in Russia. 
And I think that analysis is, is critical. Uh, and it's not to diminish, uh, I don't think in Boris's view, but certainly not in my view, um, the role NATO is playing in extending this war. Uh, but it's not, in Boris's view, the primary reasons for Russia initiating it or continuing it. Um, and now we're in a situation, uh, we're going to do a, a second interview after this, so I can get more into it. But now we're into a situation where uh, it, would, it would be humiliating for the Russian state uh, to lose in Ukraine. And so we're in, in likely, all likelihood into some long-term stalemate. Um, what I didn't agree with Boris about was Boris thought that Ukraine not only was justified in resisting the invasion, but that that resistance should extend to uh, the liberation of all of Donbass and Crimea. Um, and I don't agree with that. Uh, and I, again, I'll get into it more in the other interview, but uh, I, I don't think that Ukrainian and Russian workers and people should be slaughtering each other. Uh, this is a war primarily of the oligarchs, and I include the American and West European oligarchs. Uh, and I think the, the peoples and workers of these countries need to take a position that's in their interests and not be fodder for their, their own oligarchs. Uh, but Boris thought this was a, a fight that was similar to a national liberation struggle. And many of the Ukrainian left describe it like that. Uh, you know, they even compare it to Vietnam, where you know, the peoples were fighting U.S. aggression, U.S. imperialism, and they had a right to expel the Americans completely from all of Vietnam. And, uh, and that was Boris's view. And, and as I say, I don't agree with that view, and I'll get into it in the next interview, but I, I think Boris's analysis is very important. So... Uh, I think what we might do, actually, is just tack on to this intro, uh, Bor Boris's interview. So once, once we're done talking about this, uh, people can just keep watching and, and we'll play Boris's inter last interview with us. But just to clarify your position, in the past you have said that you do agree or you do support Ukraine's or the Ukrainian people's right to self-determination. You just feel that this war is a fight which pits working people against one another and that it's pretty clear that this is a war of attrition and that you know neither side is really winning and people are just being slaughtered and so that's why you would advocate an end to hostilities not because you don't think Ukraine should exist as a state oh quite the contrary there's a there's a difference between whether Ukraine as a state as a nation as a people have a right to resist the invasion and what they should do about it. What is the tactic? What is the strategy? Uh, I mean, even for example, the Ukrainian people had a right and the state had a right to use arms to defend against the Russian invasion. Does that mean it was the right thing to do? I don't know. I'm not there having to deal with it, but there were alternatives. Uh, certainly one of the early alternatives, and this was advocated by many voices in Ukraine, was to take NATO off the table, that before the invasion took place, Ukraine should have declared neutrality and made it very clear Ukraine would not join NATO. I don't know for sure that would have uh, stopped the 150,000 troops that were on Ukraine's border. Uh, 
frankly, the declaration of no NATO could have been done before those 150,000 troops got to the Ukrainian border. It would have been the correct decision. It would have been in the interests of the Ukrainian people and the world's people to say no to NATO and not allow that to be a provocation. Now, Boris and others uh, think that NATO was just an excuse. Uh, the possibility of Ukraine or NATO expansion was not the reason that, that this was done for, again for domestic politics. And I have to say, there wasn't any chance of NATO accepting Ukraine at that time, or even now. I mean, one can see just recently at the recent NATO summit, uh, Zelensky went away pissed off because he couldn't get a clear answer on when Ukraine could join NATO. But that was clear before the Russian invasion that both uh, France and Germany, uh, in all probability Turkey, and maybe others, there was not going to be consensus for Ukraine to join NATO. And, and that should have just been acknowledged. And of course, the Americans uh, inflamed the situation by making this point of principle that Ukraine can join NATO if it wants to, NATO can accept whoever it wants to, it's not up to anyone else, it's not up to Russia, who gets to join NATO. Uh, and it was all BS because they weren't going to let Ukrainian anyway. Um, and Russia knew that. So Boris's view, and I, I tend to agree with it, this was to a large extent NATO was an excuse, but that if it was, that excuse could have been taken away. So the Ukrainian government didn't have to participate in this provocation, and there were many Ukrainians saying that before the invasion. Uh, you can take a situation, uh, you know, even like Canada. You know, Quebec has the right to self-determination. Um, there was a ref several referendums that were very, very close. Um, and the pro-independence uh, section uh, lost by a hair sometimes, and I think it was two or three referendums. I, mean, I actually made a film about this called Never Endem Referendum. People can find it on the analysis website. But... You know, let's say Quebec had had independent movement had actually won, and it wouldn't have taken much of a switch of vote for the independence vote to win. Um, and let's say Canada, uh, the Canadian federal government, said, "Well, we don't think the referendum was fair, or we don't care that you won. We're not, you know, going to respect it." Even though the Canadian Supreme Court actually had decided that the uh, Quebec had a right to the referendum. But the federal government might have said, well, you ran the referendum, Quebec government, and we don't trust the results. Would that have meant it would have been the correct thing to do for Quebec to start some kind of armed struggle to leave Canada? Well, I don't think so. I don't know if it would be general strikes. I don't know whether it would refuse to pay taxes to the Canadian federal government. And there's lots of ways, lots of tactics. It didn't mean that, you know, even within international law or the United Nations Charter, you know, national liberation movements, and, and in a sense, you could say if that had happened to Quebec, Quebec could be seen as a legitimate national liberation movement. And it has all the prerequisites of being called a nation, common language, common geography, common history, and so on, um, common economy. You know, it, it met, I think, much of the criteria, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do, to, to have Quebecois slaughtering workers slaughtering Canadian workers so that the billionaire class of Quebec gets to rule Quebec 
instead of the billionaire class of all of Canada, which did and now includes much of the Quebec elites. You know, there's a difference between a national liberation movement that actually is fighting for complete liberation of the people, which means not just fighting on behalf of the elites, so the elites, local elites, get to control things. If, if, the, if it's a national liberation struggle that leads to a people's economy, to some form of a socialist economy, to a, some form of real independent development, well, that's a different issue. Uh, maybe even then, in, in many circumstances, you know, armed struggle isn't the first step. Um, there needs, I think, to be many forms of peaceful struggle before one gets to armed struggle. I mean, if one tries every peaceful possibility and, you, and there's been a proven referendum and a proven vote and it's clearly the will of the people, and, you know, for the sake of argument, say it's the Canadian federal government says, well, the hell with you, we're occupying Quebec and we're going to arrest everybody who doesn't agree with us. And it's not so preposterous because in 1970, during the War Measures Act, when the Front de Liberation de Quebec uh, kidnapped this uh, Quebec cabinet minister, which they wound up killing, Pierre Laporte, uh, the Canadian Army did occupy Quebec and did arrest thousands of people. And that was a crock. It was totally unnecessary. It was like a dress rehearsal for doing it. But that doesn't mean armed struggle was the obvious next step. Peaceful first. Then, yeah, you get into a situation, perhaps. I mean, if you imagine being, you know, like, what if you're the invading force is Hitlerite Germany and you're French during World War II? Well, I don't think there was possibilities for peaceful opposition. It had to go to armed struggle. There was no choice. Uh, so just because a, a people, a nation, have a right to armed struggle, it doesn't mean it's always the correct and first thing to do. So right, even right now in Ukraine, and now we're getting into it, we might as well get into it. Um, I don't think you, Ukrainians should be uh, being slaughtered and being sacrificed in their tens and hundreds of thousands of, of soldiers and civilians in order to retake uh, the areas occupied by Russia in Ukraine so that the Ukrainian oligarchy can get regain control. And there's no sign in, in Ukraine that the progressive left forces have any enough strength that anything other than that will happen. Now, the same thing goes on the other side. There's absolutely no reason Russian workers should be fighting to slaughter Ukrainians on behalf of the Ukrainian oligarchy in the name of some mystical fictitious, toxic brew of religion and nationalism. You know, this thing they're calling state civilization. They have to save the Russian identity. And if they lose in Ukraine, it's a, a threat to the whole identity of the Russian people. That's just kind of bullshit. And, and it's very, uh, I think, similar to the kind of uh, language that Hitler used in saving the purity of the Aryan race. And, 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 and not much different than Americans' justifications for uh, whether it's the war in Vietnam or the invasion of Iraq, where they're defending, supposedly defending democracy around the world, and, uh, and, and people are supposed to fight and, and be slaughtered. Uh, so what? So that Dick Cheney's Halliburton get big contracts in Iraq or uh, American corporate 
billionaires can continue to dominate or try to dominate the global economy, which they're not doing so well at, but doesn't mean they're not trying. We're also not in their shoes, so I'm not sure if, if what you know Ukrainians who are being slaughtered are really thinking about the oligarchy, but at a certain point, there needs to be an acknowledgement that this war isn't going anywhere. So even if armed struggle can be justified in any scenario, in this particular case, this is a war of attrition. The U.S. has agreed to send cluster munitions to Ukraine because they're so low on on all forms of weaponry and, and they need artillery rounds and so they're getting cluster munitions, which just seems pretty crazy to me, especially if, if they're trying to argue that Ukraine has the moral high ground, which you know you could argue, but if you're using cluster munitions, then what are you doing, right? Like this can't go on along that path. Again, it goes to this question, do Ukrainian people have a right within international law uh, to wage an armed struggle, and in this case, we're talking about the Ukrainian, led by the Ukrainian state, um, against an invading force. Yeah, that doesn't mean the working people of Ukraine should go along with it, and, and, and especially go along with it the way it's unfolding. Um, I, as I said, to regain uh, the sections uh, or all of Donbass, to, to regain Crimea, um, how is that in the interests of, of workers to die in their tens of thousands and their families to die? Uh, if there's a, a, a struggle to be waged against Russian occupation, it can be continued to be waged if that's what the people of Crimea want to do. If the people of Donbass want to wage a struggle against Russian occupation, there's ways to do that. As I said, whether it's through general strikes or demands for referendums, uh, all, there's all kinds of ways that, to wage that fight. Um, it does. It's a difference between a right and when it's cr the right, the best choice to exercise that right. Um, so of course, uh, the, the Ukraine has a right to defend its sovereignty. On the other hand, there is a right to self-determination, not only for the Ukrainian people in relationship to the Russian state, but there may well be a right to self-determination for Donbass. Um, there may be, under international law, a, a right to self-determination for Crimea. And the way to determine that is through legitimate UN-brokered referendums. And, and that should be the results of those referendums should be respected. And I think that's what people around the world should be fighting for. And, and you know, People do say, well, you're not Ukrainian. It's not up to you um, when or how the Ukrainians wage this fight. Well, one, yeah, true enough. Although I have to say my, ba my family background is partly Ukrainian. So whatever that's worth, not much. I didn't grow up there, but uh, my, I didn't know my, that. Yeah, one side of my family were Jewish Ukrainians and uh, lived just outside of Kiev. And if they hadn't left in 1904, they'd probably all be dead. Uh, either by Ukrainian or Russian anti-Semites or eventually by Nazis. Uh, but it doesn't matter. That kind of connection doesn't affect my thinking at all. Um, but the, 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 the crux of the issue here is that, one, we're dealing with global monopoly capitalism. We, whether we're Ukrainian, Russian, American, Canadian, whatever, 
if you're progressive, if you actually really believe in democratic ideals, then we have to start with the fact that global monopoly capitalism has reached a stage of such irrationality, such parasitism, such decay, that they can't, they being the elites, most of the elites of the world, can't even deal with defending their own system. The world is at threat, existential threat from the climate crisis. And they're, they're mostly paralyzed because they won't give up their profit, they won't give up the marketplace, the logic of the market. And this summer, if it wasn't clear before, and it should have been, because there were lots of evidence before this summer, but if you, you know, after this summer, if somebody can start, you know, continue to doubt we're in, in, in on the cusp of catastrophe from climate, then you're nuts. And it's, it's obvious to everyone, but they can't do anything about it because the only way to do something about it is one, end the war in Ukraine right away. Because how are you going to have any proper international negotiations on climate uh, in the midst of this? Two, what are you going to do with Russia? Not a gas station, a country that has a gas station. It's a far more complex economy than some people have said. And you can now see from what's happening with the issue of Russian grain, Russian fertilizer, uh, and the ability of Russia to sustain all the sanctions and such. But that being said, it is still primarily a fossil fuel economy, and much of the other economy relies on the money made from fossil fuel to be able to make investments in the infrastructure and so on. So the, the issue of, of facing up to the climate crisis has to deal with what to do with some of the countries that are really dependent on fossil fuel and have made and Russia has made next to no moves uh, to you know, diversification. Even Saudi Arabia is making a lot of investments in diversifying the economy, and and they'll they'll give up fossil fuel, kicking and screaming uh, to their last breath, but they are getting ready to do it. I I don't see any evidence that that Russia's done anything and now with the, with the war I, I don't see how they can it's obvious if we're going to face up to the climate crisis the United States and China has to help Russia end this war without being humiliated and transition away from fossil fuel and and have a, a re, and we need this you know now we're getting into the next interview so we might as well and we'll replay the Karkowitzki thing separately uh, there has to be an international uh, emergency uh, declared where the you know, countries of the world, especially the United States and China, a lead on developing, one, uh, a transition to get off fossil fuels as quickly as possible, and two, something on the scale or more of the Manhattan Project. Uh, which you know invented the nuclear weapon, but instead of nuclear weapons, we need we need to work at what technology can legitimately decarbonize uh, the Earth. Uh, and and from what I limited my limited knowledge, one of the most important focuses is decarbonizing the oceans, so they can get back to uh, decarbonizing the atmosphere. Uh, but as we know now from news in just the last couple of weeks, the oceans some of the most important parts of the ocean ecosystem are about to collapse. And the ability of oceans to decarbonize 
uh, is going to be greatly reduced, already has been reduced, and, and, and we could be on another piece of catastrophic tipping point. You cannot assess the war in Ukraine without looking at it in the context of the climate crisis. It's nonsense to think about this, you know, going forward, you know, this long war of attrition, to talk about this uh, stalemate going on for years and we're going to wear the Russians out and blah, blah, blah. We're living in a world, as we know it, that's coming to an end. You know, this movie, Don't Look Up. Well, you better, you know, look up. You can't talk about it. And I, I say to the, uh, you know, Ukrainians, and I've said this to leftist Ukrainians who I've interviewed, who in fact do raise the issue that once this is over, the Ukrainian oligarchy should be expropriated. Okay, but how? you're going to, how many tens of thousands of people are going to kill before you get there? And are you really think you're going to be in the position to do that when this is over? But even set that aside, you cannot talk about this. Where is, what Ukraine is there going to be when there's the end of agriculture because of climate crisis? You know, you think the West is going to rebuild Ukraine when the West is burning, when American agriculture is dying? You know, we're 10, 15 years away. I mean, maybe we're maybe not that far away. Forget it. Maybe we're less than a decade away from the end of agriculture as we know it. And, and, and you want to talk about a, a forever war between Russia and Ukraine. It, it is, it's all part of the complete irrationality of global capitalism. And, but we have to talk about it in this way because we, you know, this isn't just like in Afghanistan, a war that can go on for 20 years. And yeah, it, it completely screws up the Afghan people and some Americans are getting killed. But it goes on for 10 years, 20 years. I mean, if it had gone on for another 20 years, I mean, would it have made that much difference to the world? No. Um, but this Ukraine-Russian thing, it does. Well, I wanted to pick up on something you said about China, because I think China is very aware of the climate crisis. And maybe that's our only hope in this war actually ending, because China only has 10% arable land, and they have something like 20% of the world's population. So... They're incredibly dependent on Ukrainian grain as well. And so maybe, you know, they want this uh, Black Sea grain deal that just fell through to potentially be rehashed and reinstalled. And I would also assume that whether there is cooperation between China and other countries in the West, that China would still be fighting for some sort of um, reform or, or ability to sustain itself long term so that the country doesn't burn as you know we've seen in, in, in other countries so even if there isn't I, I mean I do think that there has to be cooperation globally for climate change uh, or to, to fight against climate change but I think China's going to do it regardless of whether the West takes this issue seriously or not because they're seeing the effects of climate change on their territory I don't understand the Chinese not having more sense of urgency about this I, I think listen what what is you got to deal with what is China. China is state-managed capitalism with socialist characteristics. They like to call it Chinese, Chinese social, socialism with Chinese characteristics. I think it's more state cap, state capitalism 
with some socialist characteristics, meaning a significant amount of public ownership, state ownership, which means it's the market has a lot to say in China's decision-making. China's economy is very integrated into global capitalism and very dependent on the European and American markets as, our, as Europe and the United States are dependent on Chinese markets. Very, it's very integrated. You can't imagine right now global capitalism uh, with, without a China. You've just been watching part one of my discussion with Paul Jay on the recent arrest of anti-war thinker Boris Kagerlitsky. We'll be republishing uh, Paul's most recent interview with Boris from a few months back. And if you enjoyed this content, please do go to our website, theanalysis.news. You can consider donating to the show by hitting the red button at the top right corner of the screen. If you do use YouTube, you can also follow us on YouTube at theanalysis-news. But most importantly, get on our mailing list on the website. That way you're always informed of future episodes. You can also find this content on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. See you next time for part two with Paul Jay. Mm -hmm.